Good morning. The reading this morning is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. It's on uh, page, make sure it is, on page 908 in the Church Bibles and on the screen. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word um, to guide us in this world and to teach us that you offer us a palace. Um, you offer us a palace, not a prison. Um, but we look around this world and sometimes it's hard to see that. Father, today help us to realise there is nothing in this world that we should be jealous of, but we should long for you instead. Amen. 
Okay, so today's topic, Psalm 73, the grass is greener. Um, really, in a nutshell, for those of you who I've got 30 seconds of your attention and you're gone, <laughs> don't be jealous of the world, it has nothing to offer. So those, you can go to sleep now. The rest of you, <laughs> we'll go through a bit more detail. Um, we've got this picture up here of desert versus grass, and that's really the nub of this psalm. Um, there's a strange and curious case on this next slide of a lady called Vicky. Um, she was, she's wearing a pair of handcuffs there. Um, she was convicted of a murder. Um, this is her looking rather miserable being led into court. Um, and normally when you're convicted of a murder, you go to sentencing and you say to the judge, look, give me a lenient sentence. Um, this was a one-off, um, I've got a good family, I've got job prospects, um, my mental health is now under control, um, alcohol was to blame, but I don't do alcohol anymore, and I don't hang around with those people, and you, you try to put your best case forward. And the idea is at the end of it, you kind of throw yourself on the court's mercy and say, whatever you do, just give me a lenient sentence. And you do that because a rational person doesn't want to go to jail and wants to try and minimise the time, but not Vicky Brooks. Her sentencing was quite unusual. Um, her, her defence lawyer says, away from men in prison, she is settled and happy. She's able to lead, a, lead quite a normal life. And then went on to say, she's told me she's not going to apply for parole, she's not interested in getting out, she likes it in jail. Wrap your head around that. She's actually not wanting to get out of jail, she prefers it in there. And you might think, okay, that's well, a one-off. I've now had three different prisoners do the same thing. Uh, one young man who killed a family member got to jail, um, discovered because he's a murderer, he is now the most important person in the prison. Everybody wanted to be his friend and know him. Outside of prison, he was unemployed, he was living in a house with no floor, it was just dirt, um, and he was absolutely miserable. Unemployed and unemployable. But all of a sudden, he's the big man inside prison. And so guess what happened? He pleads guilty as soon as he can, Tells the judge, I don't want parole, I'm happy to stay here. I've never been happier in my life. And more recently, I had one where a prisoner uh, was waiting for the judge to give his non-parole period. He tore his shirt off and yelled at the judge, don't bother with parole, I won't be applying for it. He wanted to stay in prison too. And we have this weird phenomenon where people can get their world completely flipped upside down on its head and they can think, I would rather be in prison where I get fed, I get clothed, I do minimal work, I get looked after, everything that I could desire is in there. I might even have family and friends in there as well. But outside, I'm a nobody. I'm an absolute nobody. I'm unemployed and unemployable. I have no friends, I have no family. I don't even have a house. And you can see what happens is prison can actually be seductive. It can actually offer something that the world outside with freedom can't offer you. Psalm 73 picks up on that issue in a spiritual way and it says, effectively, the devil lures us into thinking that he can offer us everything. It looks so seductive and attractive. He's, he's the, the Vicky Brooks prison dilemma for us. That we think, do you know what, it's pretty cold and dark out here in the world and I've got to take responsibility for myself and it's all a bit tough. But the lights are on in the jail, the doors open, I can see people playing table tennis in there, it looks all right. <laughs> And that's where this psalm picks up, this world that's flipped upside down where we would rather be in prison with the devil where it's comfortable than outside and free with Jesus. 
just give you a quick overview. For those of you who make notes, there's really only three parts to this, uh, this, this psalm. So verses 1 to 14, they'll just go through bad people seem to have good lives. And that's, if you think about it, that's the opposite of Job, isn't it? Job was like, why do good people have bad lives? But this psalm's, well, okay, let's do the opposite of that. Like, why do all these bad people out there seem to have it so good? Verses 15 and 17 is the epiphany, the revelation of, hold on a second, maybe this is all upside down. Maybe we can make sense of it if we know Jesus. And the psalm finishes verses 18 to 28 uh, with a superiority of the Christian life. So let's go through the problems that he outlines in that first part of the psalm. So I've got a slide up here, verses four and five. I stole this picture straight off Instagram. Um, effectively, this is about hedonism. Um, have a look at this verse. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. These are people who just live in luxury. They have everything they want. We see this all around us, not just in social media. Um, we see friends and family and colleagues who are uh, chasing likes on social media or having a holiday in the Mauritius. They're partying, they have ostentatious wealth and spending. Their relationships are disposable and they don't even care. But meanwhile, as Christians, we don't have it like that. Some of us are stuck in a low-paying job with a boss we hate. Some of us have got marriages that are damaged and we don't know how to repair them. You might have kids who won't talk to you or won't go to church. And for some of us, we're sick and we're dealing with sickness that just won't go away and we're dealing with aging and it's getting harder and harder to do things. But we look at that and we think, what has Jesus done for me? I'm getting older, I'm getting sicker, my relationships suck, everything is not working, but gee, non-Christians have got it pretty good, don't they? Because I can see it. So that's the first problem, the hedonism of the world. It seems to be in our face. Let's have a look at the next one. Their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence and from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. And so the writer looks at this and he thinks, oh look, if we're being good, good things should happen to us, but hold on a second. There's some seriously evil people in this world. That one there, uh, some of you may recognize him, the SS doctor, the angel of death, Josef Mengele. He's famous for experimenting on human beings using no anesthetic. I won't even go into the details of what he did, but extraordinary evil that literally requires an evil imagination to come up with what he did. Those of you who've got a hard stomach, go Google it. But what happened to him? Like, did God strike him down? Did he get arrested at the end of the war and put on the war, Nuremberg War Crime Tribunal? Did he get killed by the Russians? No, he escaped to Brazil. And from Brazil, he moved to Paraguay. Uh, and he moved around, went farming, and died at 67 while swimming. He, spent his, he must have killed many thousands of people. Um, and what did God do to him? God let him live out his life to an old age. That seems just so incredibly unfair in a way, and you look, he's not, even, he's not even unique. What about Pol Pot, the leader of Cambodia? This is an education for all the young ones out there. You're thinking, who are these people? School today. Um, <laughs> Pol Pot was the leader of Cambodia, next to Vietnam in Asia. Pol Pot had a population of eight million people when he took over, and he ended up murdering three million 
of his own population. He tried to reset the calendar in his country to year zero and killed three million people doing it. So what happened to him? Did Navy SEALs rappel out of a helicopter and catch him? He lived to a ripe old age and died in his sleep. And you look at these evil people who are quite literally dreaming up ways of doing evil, and you compare it to your own life, and you think, communism killed over 100 million people, fascism's probably got the same number, Nazis alone murdered 30 million plus people. And you see all that, and you're thinking, how on earth could God allow that? As Christians, we were powerless to stop abortion laws going through last year. They'd loaned hundreds of millions of people being massacred. We pray for peace in church, but at the moment, the world is arming itself for war. It feels like we have no power whatsoever. All the power lies with the wicked. It's getting pretty dark at this point in the psalm, but he just keeps going, because he wants you to plumb the depths of human misery. The next one is mocking God. I love this slide. This guy just looks like a total tool, but if Jesus returns, kill him again. And that's actually a genuine website, undojesus.org. I, I get it if you don't believe, that's okay. But if you don't believe because God's not real, but you then spend your entire life running a website trying to convince people of that, that's even more bizarre. That's what he does. Um, but you can see here, we've got people um, such as the, what, the former CEO of Essendon and the National Australia Bank. Um, Andrew Thornburn, um, he never gave any public view on Christianity whatsoever. He was just the National Australia Bank CEO. But when he became the CEO of Essendon Football Club, someone said, because you went to a church that 10 years ago said they don't agree with same-sex marriage, you can't be here. And so this became a public issue where eventually the Victorian Premier described him as being a man of intolerance, hatred, bigotry, and absolutely appalling. What, man didn't even give a Christian view. He went to a Christian church 10 years earlier and that was enough for a Victorian Premier to accuse him of being intolerant, hate-filled, bigot, and absolutely appalling. These people mock God, they mock us mercilessly, and they don't care. They want to erase every trace of Christianity from Western culture, but meanwhile, we're trying to tell our school friends and our uni friends that we're Christians and we know we're gonna get mocked. In fact, some of us get mocked by our own family who aren't Christians, who think that we're just worshiping a spaghetti monster in the sky. Um, and in those situations when the world mocks Jesus and the world mocks us for our faith in Jesus, God seems quite impotent. But we're still not miserable enough. Let's go another slide here. <laughs> I love this. It's not hard to find ridiculous things on the internet these days, so I went for full ridiculousness here. Um, <laughs> How about this, verse 12? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. This, this guy on the left here, he's the son of some billionaire, and he decided to put up a post with himself effectively eating a gold bar, surrounded in gold clothes, gold tubs, a gold skull, just cash all over the floor, which is a tripping hazard for the Oak Health and Safety people here. So. <laughs> This guy is just showing off how rich he is, because to him, that's important. To me, it looks silly, but that's in his mind. That's what it's about. Um, over here, you've got the, um, the Instagram site from Rich Kids of London. Uh, there's these rich kid websites where rich kids literally show off how rich they are. Um, and you'll see on these sites, they'll have gold-plated Bentleys, 
one of them had a receipt for a, um, a dining out um, restaurant for over $200,000. One meal. Um, you see luxury perfumes, you see jets. The world loves greed. The world promotes greed. Uh, it sometimes does it subtly, because sometimes some people say, well, we can't do that, but the world loves it, and the world flaunts it. But the Christian sits there and goes, I can't even pay my electricity bill. I want to give money to the church and tithe, and I, I'm struggling with my mortgage. And here we are struggling to do good things with our money, like I can't take my kids on a holiday, I've got no money this year. But meanwhile, the rich prosper. And so as a Christian, you can get to this point of thinking, why am I actually bothering? Like, what's in this for me? And it brings us to the lowest point in the psalm, verses 13 and 14. We've got on the next slide. You see this, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Like, surely in vain. I have absolutely wasted my time keeping my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. All day long I am suffering. Every morning brings new punishments. So this is a low point. This is the question you've got to ask yourself. Does it suck being a Christian? Legitimately, does it suck? Pol Pot can kill millions of people, gets to die in his sleep. Rich kids of London can photograph themselves in gold Bentleys. I can't even get a girl to like me. I can't get a job. I can't get whatever. We're struggling. I think one of the hard things for Christians at this point is we actually come to believe that if we're good, then God will do good things for us. And this becomes the prosperity doctrine. We think, I'll tell you what, I'll give money to church and God will give me more back. And it sounds a little bit dumb on the surface, but actually 20% of Christians subscribe to this view. Have a look at those verses. That is not the prosperity doctrine. This is a Christian who is suffering. Their body doesn't work properly. Their money doesn't work properly. Their relationships don't work. They are suffering. This is not God rewarding them with lots of money and lots of happiness because they're a Christian. They seem to have a life that's not that great at all. In fact, it makes them wonder, why am I even doing this? That brings us to two of the most important verses you'll read here. Verses 16 and 17. For those of you who underline your Bibles, this is probably worth underlining. These verses are just profound, and I want, there's, there's probably nothing I can say about these verses as good as what they just say for themselves. There's no point preaching a sermon on them, let's just read them. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. It troubled me until I entered the sanctuary of God. When you meet with Jesus, it will make sense. When you meet with Jesus, you will no longer be troubled. When you meet with Jesus, then you will understand the final destiny of rich kids of London. You won't be jealous anymore. Now you will have some understanding. Have a look at verses 18 to 20 that'll come up as we move through. There's a whole section on this. I'm just grabbing a small snippet. It says, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down in ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. How's this bit? They are like a dream when one awakes. That's the wicked. They're like a dream. They're not even real. So what are we fearing? When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The wicked will be swept away. They will be like a dream when one awakes. 
Yet Christians long for what they have, even though they're like a dream that will be swept away. All of these things, the hedonism, the violence, the mocking of God, the greed, they will all vanish. And only knowing Jesus will remain. Now, I've got a few things I want to say to the youth in the church today. Um, I won't get you to volunteer if you're a youth, but you know in your heart whether you're youthful or not. But we had a whole bunch of youth up on the, uh, on the stage playing today. There's a whole bunch of back row youth down there. Um, and I want you to, to just tune in for a second, because I know most of you have already gone to sleep. You heard that first 30 seconds. <laughs> it is hard. It is really hard to be a young Christian today. It actually is. It's really hard. And it gets harder. It was harder for you than it was for us. It was harder for us than it was for our parents. I don't know what it's like. You go to church, you've got Christian friends, maybe you go on CE camp, but church can look so boring. Like, it can really look boring. It's just like a bunch of old people singing songs you don't like. There's a guy who preaches a sermon and luckily told you to tune in for the first 10 seconds because the rest of it was really long and boring. Um, but you look at your non-Christian friends and they're partying, they're drinking, they've got no rules, They can follow every new trendy idea that comes along and get praised for it. You follow an idea that's been around for thousands of years unchanged and they think it's silly. And so you begin to ask yourself as a youth, would it really matter if I skip church? Just once, you know. I've got important things on it, you know. Would it really matter if I drank at a party? Would God see that? What if I lied to my parents? What if I was like a little bit rude to them? It would really matter too much. What if I date a non-Christian? If you think the world looks cool and you think that church looks boring and you think that any of those things are acceptable, then go back to verses 16 and 17. Meet with Jesus. Because if you think that the world looks cool and church looks boring, I promise you, you don't know Jesus because he is more powerful, more wise. He has a kingdom, not a jail. The world is trying to seduce you into a jail where it will lock you up and it will give you everything of your heart's desire and destroy you doing it. But Jesus will give you eternity. For those of you in the youth today, do not be seduced by the world. There's a story in Genesis of Lot and his wife. I quickly digress, it's a fantastic story. Lot and his family escaped from the city of Sodom and it's an awful city, it's just absolutely carnage. And God says, I'm gonna destroy the city, you better flee. And Lot and his family flee and they're told, don't look back. And they're traveling up the hillside away from the city and sulfur rains down from the sky, burning sulfur engulfs the city. And Lot's wife famously turns back and looks at the city. That's not an accident, it's not she goes, oh my gosh, like raining sulfur from heaven, like quickly get the camera out, put that on Instagram. Like, Lot's wife looks back, and the reason that she looks back is because she misses Sodom. She doesn't care about the promised land she's going to, that's in the future, that's too hard, sort that out down the track. But that's my Sodom, that's where I grew up, that's my city that I love. And that's the temptation you have, young people here today, is to look back over your shoulder at what you've left behind you see that God will engulf this world in burning soul, and you think, oh, gee, but I still like it. Still wouldn't mind going out and getting involved in that. Don't do it. Keep your eyes fixed on the promised land. Do not look back. And quickly for parents here, and I say this as a um, parent of four, um, 
it can be tough being a parent when you know just what the world has to seduce your children. Um, the world has money, it has power, it has violence, it has greed. And we feel responsible for protecting our little children and not letting them get hurt by that world. And that responsibility burns hard into Christian parents. The youth here today, you won't see that. You don't see how much your parents pray for you and care for you, but it hurts. And so what happens, and the danger for parents is, you think, how do I protect my kids from this? How do I build a fence around them so that they won't be hurt by it? And we build big fences. We ban them from this, we ban them from that. We make rules for this, rules for that. Some of the rules are wise, but often we just have a lot of rules because we don't want our kids ending up as the rich kids of London. And so as parents, there's a danger that we will slip into legalism, that we will slip into a way of thinking that if I can just put up enough rules and laws around my child, they will stay with Jesus. I take a punt, legalism is probably one thing that drives children further away from church than almost anything else. Kids hate it. And all the teens here are going, yeah, mum, I hate those rules. Let me do whatever I want. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But legalism is a sick form of Christianity. And the reason it's sick is because you're looking at the Josef Menglers of the world and the rich kids of London and those beach shots in Thailand and you're thinking, they really do hold power. No, they don't. They're a dream that will be completely destroyed by God. They are a fantasy that will be blown away. The real power lies with Jesus. You don't need to fear the world and engage in legalism. What you need to do is show your kids Jesus. You need your kids to come to Jesus and meet him. That's the way to solve the problem, not to hedge around with legalism. Say this to the parents. Think about this with your children. Are you raising them with a bunch of safety rules? Or are you raising them with a strong faith? If they have a strong faith, none of that will appeal to them. The rich kids of London will just simply be a joke to them like it is to me, and it is to Jesus. Let me come back to Vicky Brooks as I conclude. So Vicky Brooks desperately wanted to be in jail. And I reckon a whole bunch of us were either in the prison van on the way to jail and we want to be in there. And we're not in there yet. You know, we're still outside. We've still got our freedom. We can get out of the prison van whenever we want. Some of us are maybe standing at the fence of the prison looking inside. The lights are on. Hot chocolate's been made. The doors are open. And the devil's just beckoning us inside and saying, look how good it is in here. And we're going, oh, it is a bit cold out here. It's not very nice out here. It does look very good inside. Don't fall for that. Don't trade in your freedom in Christ and the eternal joy that he gives you for that temporary solution. Jesus may not make you wealthy. He may not take away your health problems. He may not fix your family problems. But he will give you eternal life and he will give you something meaningful that will last forever. The clue to this entire thing comes back to those two verses. Go to the sanctuary, meet Jesus. It will then make sense. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us eternity. Thank you for giving us your power and your glory and your kingdom. Thank you for showing us that this world is but a mere fantasy and a dream that will go away. Lord, help us to persevere when we can see that our relationships and our bodies don't work as they ought. 
Father, I pray for the youth in this church today that they will stand strong and they will be brave in the face of all of the stuff the world throws at them. Father, help them to make tough decisions and not be cowards. Father, raise up a generation of youth who do not stand at the prison fence longing to be inside, but who instead march for your palace knowing that you have a room waiting for them. Father, thank you for your love and your salvation. Amen.